I, uh, I gave the first hour a little longer to say hi, but after this service, uh, the kindergarten class is having a little special presentation, so I got to go to that, and I've been told very strictly, make sure you don't go long today, there's a presentation, so my wife's gone, what's that? That is not true. All right, here we go. And now my soul is crushed. Welcome to Northwest Hills. Um, <laughs> wow, okay. Um, I'm glad that we're part of a church family. So when your kids feel like they don't have parents, there's a lot of other parents around. That's what part of being the body of Christ is all about. But wow, I'm, you know, we're going to pray first and then just go in. So let's pray. Father God, um, I thank you for your word this morning, uh, your word that is timeless and true. Um, your word that tells us that nothing happens apart from your will. Um, your word that tells us to be diligent and wise in our planning. Um, but in that planning, Lord, we need to say and we need to think and we need to behave in such a way that you are at the center of everything. Um, Lord willing is that phrase. The Lord wills. And God... Um, that's a hard one to live out sometimes. It's a hard one to, to process as we're planning our week and as we're planning our lives. We, we love to plan and think and prepare, and it's easy to forget you. And your word tells us that that is, that is arrogant, and that's a wrong way of thinking. Um, so, Lord, we put you front and center of all things. We love you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So my name is Josh Carstensen. I'm a pastor here. Uh, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 4. Uh, this is our fifth week in our six-week series through the book of James. Next week, as Jill just mentioned, is Father's Day, and it's an all-family day. So all the kids will be in here over the age of five, and we're going to be finishing up our James series. Um, so we're going to be in James chapter 4 today, starting in verse 13. I'll get there in just a second. It will be very quick. Um, I know I've kind of had the tendency of kind of pushing out Scripture longer and longer in my sermons recently, but, but we'll get there very quickly. But I want to first ask uh, a question, and, and that is, how many of you would consider yourself a planner? So how many of you are like, I am definitely a planner? Well, interesting. A whole lot less in second service than in first service. Okay, um, your planners love, love like that Google calendar. You know, you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do, you look at that calendar. What is my day going to look like? Or even better, the night before you open it up and, okay, what is tomorrow going to look like? And you're literally in bed now because you can look at your calendar while in bed, which is horrible and beautiful at the same time. Um, and just, oh, here's what my day is going to look like. And then some of us are just not planners at all. Who's that? Rich hand, if you're not a planner at all, you just don't want to be boxed in. Like, don't tell me what to do. I want to be free. I want to do what I want when I want. Now, um, who is uh, one married to the other? Who is like a planner married? Yeah, yeah, that man, that, that God, we're praying for you. Um, there, there's a lot of that that goes on, uh, a lot of tension there often. You know, one says, hey, let's, let's do something this summer. You want to go on vacation? Let's make a plan. The other's like, yeah, let's go on vacation, but I want to plan it. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And half the time it doesn't happen. Or, you know, someone's like, oh, well, let's go to dinner tonight. And the other person's like, oh, but I, but I made a plan. Like, I'm supposed to vacuum the downstairs. It's Thursday. I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't go out to dinner because if Friday happens, I got this. And, and man, tension happens. But, but ultimately... Um, all of us, on some level, we have to plan a little bit, right? And, and the reason we plan 
is ultimately to accomplish our dreams. And everyone has dreams. Whether you're a planner or not, everyone is a dreamer of some sort. We all have a vision, um, whether we can articulate it specifically with like acute specificity or not, a vision of what our future will look like. You know, we've all got a hope that, you know, maybe I'll get married someday or maybe I'll move to this town or maybe I'll acquire this business or maybe I'll pay off debt or maybe I'll retire here or, or maybe just maybe I can get 30 minutes of kid-free silence before 8 p.m. by myself to read something without having to lock myself in the bathroom. Like maybe a vision for a future looks like that for some of you. I mean, that wouldn't probably be me, but I'm just saying like that's life for some of us. Um, But in order to reach our dreams, you plan. Like that's, that's just what you do. You make a plan that helps you reach your dreams. And the, the question today that James, the author, the human author of the book of James, uh, is getting after today is, how should I plan my life? Or how should we make a plan for our life? Um, again, the Bible has a lot to say about very practical things, very practical wisdom, like has a lot to say about relationships and, and how to do business and, and how to make a plan. And we see some of this practical advice in what's called wisdom literature. Uh, you've got a number of books in the Old Testament. You've got Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You've got Job. You've got Proverbs. Proverbs is a big one. It's kind of lumped into this category called wisdom literature. And then in the New Testament, there's the book of James, which is uh, under the category of wisdom literature as well, kind of giving just very, very simple, practical advice on how to be successful uh, in life. And uh, James is, is very practical today. He's, he's giving us um, some very practical advice on how to make a plan. But it's also not just practical. It's very theological. Um, it's not just, well, do this, this, and this. It's, oh, how do you think about your life correctly? Um, and so we're going to jump right in. Uh, I'm going to ask that you stand. We're going to honor God's word. Um, because nothing in this culture seems to be sacred, and we're going to fight against that a little bit uh, and give God's word some honor here by standing. So this is James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, uh, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Go ahead and take a seat. So how do we plan our lives? We're going to kind of carefully work through this, but I want to start with this statement. Um, If you know where you've come from, and you know why you are here, and you know where you're going, you know what to do, therefore you will know how to plan. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. If you know where you've come from, and you know why you are here, and you know where you are going, you know what to do, therefore you know how to plan. The inverse of that is simultaneously true. If you don't know where you've come from, you have no idea why you're here, and you don't know where you're going, then you won't know what to do. Therefore, you will not know how to plan. Now, why do I say that? I say that because James is very, very specifically talking to a group of people who have an agreed-upon identity. 
Uh, they are Jewish Christians. They have an identity that gives them uh, a framework in which that they uh, are kind of adhering to and how they live their lives. So they agree that they came from a certain place. They agree that they have a certain identity in the present. They, ID, they agree that they have a certain future ahead of them. And they agree that they ought to live a certain way. Therefore, James has kind of the authority to give voice into how they ought to plan their lives. Now, this may seem silly, but I think it's really important, specifically when talking about wisdom literature, because if you don't have an agreed-upon identity, how can I get up here and tell you, this is how you need to plan your life so you'll end up here if here isn't where you want to go? Does that make sense? Um, So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a certain identity that tells you, this is my aim in life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is not your aim in life. And so I can't just get up here and say, well, you need to live like this. And James can't just get up here and say, you need to live like this unless you have that identity piece at first. And so my hope today um, is to try to address both, Um, is to address someone who has committed their life to following Jesus um, and and who's able to take these words from James, very specific words. And also I want to address the person who's not quite there yet, uh, because I think James has something to say to that person as well, but it'll look a little bit different. So first to the Christian, um, primarily because this is who James is writing to. He's writing to um, kind of first century, mid mid to early 40s. This is about 10 years after Jesus was on the scene as an adult, after he died, was crucified, resurrected, and left. Um, This is written to a group of kind of house churches scattered around Palestine uh, on the outskirts of kind of the main hub for spiritual authority where the church began in Jerusalem, um, in uh, kind of this area outside of Jerusalem. Again, he's writing to uh, a number of Christians here. Uh, And he says this. I'm going to start with uh, verse 17. We're actually going to work, or verse 15, and we're going to work our way backwards. So he starts with this, or I'm going to start with this because this is his conclusion. He says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. All right, if you're, if you're not really wanting or willing to listen to the rest of the sermon, listen to this, because I'm going to summarize everything that I'm about to say over the next 20 minutes right here. Um, translation from James. If you're a follower of Jesus, you ought to plan your life very diligently. As you're planning your life at the center of your affections, at the center of what drives your life, ought to be a mindset that says, my life is a vapor. It is very, very short. And my understanding of reality is very small. It's very limited. But I want Christ's will for my life to be at the center of what drives my activity. And not only that, but I want to recognize on a daily basis that I am not my own sovereign, but God is. And I want to do the very thing that God wants me to do. Not what he wants my neighbor to do. Not what he wants my friend to do, but what he wants me to do. Did you get all that? Yes, we got it. If the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We're going to work backwards and see why James made such a statement, what was going on in the hearts of the early believers, and what I believe is going on in the hearts of many of us, myself included here, very often. Verse 13, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, jumping down to 16, as it is you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. 
Now, it's not for certain here. We don't know exactly who he was writing to, but we can kind of uh, get the inference. If you, if you were to take out chapter and verse, the, the story continues here. The letter continues here into chapter 5. And so we can, we can assume perhaps that he's talking to kind of wealthy landowners at this point. Um, there were a number of people who were making a, a life, a business out of buying and selling land. Uh, and, and a number of them were actually exploiting the poor at, at the time. But we haven't gotten to that section yet. But he's just talking about those who are dreaming about going and doing something and making a profit. Uh, and he's not, and James doesn't initially come out and say that, that these types of dreams and these types of plans are a bad thing. In fact, wisdom literature tells us again and again that planning is very good for your life, that you should plan. You know, Proverbs says, be like the ant who makes a plan, who works hard. You know, work wisely. Um, no one builds something uh, without being able to complete it. The Bible talks a lot about that. But what James very acutely says is he says, Christian, be very careful of making a plan without Christ at the very center of that plan. Because your knowledge of tomorrow is nothing. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. If God doesn't want you to wake up tomorrow, you don't wake up. Right? And, and I'll be honest, um, being uh, in a, the role of a pastor, I get to see this front and center every week. Every single week. Um, this Monday, um, JJ and I were up at uh, the Children's Hospital up in Portland visiting a two-day-old, you know, to a family who did not expect that what happened was going to happen. Right? We, we, have a fa- we have multiple families. Some of their stories aren't mine to share, but, you know, there were people in this room that were here last week that are not here this week, that are with the Lord. That's just the reality of life. And sometimes it happens like that. And James says, you cannot forget that your life is a vapor. If the Lord wills, Deo Valente is kind of that Latin term, Lord willing. Um, It's kind of a movement, I think, I don't know, maybe 50 years ago, there's a big movement of putting DV at the end of a lot of things. I'm not suggesting that we do that per se, but it's the mindset that's important. Lord willing, we will do this or that. So I want to look at three dangers Um, For the Christian who arrogantly keeps God out of his daily plans. For the Christian, the first danger is this. Keeping God out of our plans is astonishingly easy to do. Think about it. Uh, James is writing to first century Christians in the 40s who were very likely eyewitnesses to Jesus himself. Um, if they weren't eyewitnesses, they certainly were friends to eyewitnesses. They witnessed the, the rising up uh, of Jesus, his life, and his, certainly his public life and ministry. Uh, they witnessed his execution. They witnessed him rising again. Um, and yet, 10 years later, here they are, forgetting to put God at the center of their life. And if it's that easy for those who lived then to do that, How much easier is it for us 2,000 years later to live our lives and forget that God is actually at the center and nothing happens in my life if it is not the will of God? Man, we we live in such a world where for most events, for most activities, um, we kind of forget that God is behind all things. 
right? And we're, we're sold from every single angle that you get to decide what to do with your life in every moment, whether it's business and every activity, whether it's, you know, work at home or pleasure with the family. We're told you make decisions, you go live your life. And no one wants to give credence to a God who is sovereign, who has like causal power over any activity from an individual. You know, think about like every assault of advertising you ever get. It's telling you, be a sovereign in your life. Make a decision, right? A couple weeks ago, Pastor Mike was joking about uh, this commercial that we always hear. hear, And and Pastor Mike and I kind of go back and forth laughing about this commercial. Um, But it's like with Kiefer Mazda, and this is not a plug for them. But imagine instead of Instead of Fatty coming on and saying, hey, uh, you won't hate your life if you buy a Mazda anymore. Imagine instead of that, you heard, you know what? Before you buy a car, I really want you to consider whether this is the Lord's will for your life or not. Right? Before you consider investing $30,000 on this next ride, before you consider 10 years of easy financing at $6.99 a month, I want you to go before the Lord and say, God, is this the investment you want for your kingdom? Right? But the reality is, as a Christian, that's what we should be doing. But we're never, ever, 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 ever told by anyone outside of the church, you really should consider God's will in this. Because no one's looking for the will of God. No one's looking for God's activity. Um, in fact, very often, we have a hard time seeing God's activity. Um, this is true on a psychological perspective as well. I think uh, a number of you perhaps have seen, uh, I think it was the late 90s, I want to say like 99, there was this, uh, I don't know, experiment, I guess you would call it, that came out. There was this video uh, of six players playing basketball. They were passing the ball, and three players had white shirts, and three players had black shirts. And the question uh, before the video begins is, count how many times the players wearing white shirts pass the ball. Anyone seen this video Yeah, a number of you have seen it. And so you watch this video and you're watching carefully and they're passing the ball. And so you're counting, okay, one time, two time, three time. As they're passing the ball, right in the middle, this man, like my size, dressed in a giant gorilla suit, walks right in the middle of them passing the ball. And he just stands there and he kind of waves. And it's blaringly obvious. And it's not like real quick. It's, you know, he takes a number of seconds. And then he kind of just walks off the stage And half of the people who watch that video will not see the giant gorilla front and center. And the idea behind it is this idea of selective attention. We see the things that we're looking for. And I would contend that the same is true of how we see God's activity in our lives. We see the things that we're looking for. And very often, we're not looking for God to do a work in our life. And we're looking for ourselves and our sovereign choices to do what we want. So warning number one for the Christian, it's very easy to forget God in our planning. Warning number two, um, I see a danger for the Christian in not thinking rightly about God and thinking rightly about life. Um, true thinking is something that we are very much after as a church. Um, to think rightly about God, to think rightly um, about our lives and how the two interact together, about God's activity and my activity. We are about truth here. Truth is so important. Um, This is why every week we open up the Bible front and center. This is why for half of our service, we're, we're opening up the text because we're concerned with things that are true. 
And we live in a culture where truth is being assaulted from every angle. Everything seems to be, you know, it's relative. There is no such thing as truth. Well, the Bible does not agree with that. Um, sure, there are some things that we have a hard time understanding, absolutely. But, there, but propositions are either true or they're not. Does God exist? Um, that's not a maybe. He either does or he doesn't. And so we are after what is true. Our aim um, is to believe what is reasonable and then to pursue that reasonable idea with a life of faith pursuing what we believe is reasonable. The third danger that I see um, from leaving God out of our plans uh, is an arrogant heart that ultimately pursues material acquisition and profit. Um, the Bible is constantly warning the Christian for this. And my goodness, if this isn't like the, the pulpit of every kind of Western American uh, preacher, it ought to be. Like we need to fight materialism from every angle because we are assaulted at it from every angle. There's this idea that I can have whatever I want because I've got means, I've got choices, I have access and ultimately, the Bible doesn't say that things are bad. It depends how you use them, but it's, it's the heart that matters, right? But very often when we leave God out of our plans, it's driven by a heart that's not after what God's after. It's driven by a heart that wants what I want, whether that's a nicer vacation, a nicer house, bigger, better, more. And that is a direct assault against the spiritual values that Christ has given for all of us. And so I think it's good on occasion to look at our life and to say, what drives my life? What are my dreams? When I stay up late at night, what am I thinking about? What ultimately is driving my choices? What is driving my time? Is it a love and affection for God that's causing me to make decisions based on that? Or is it a dream vacation or, or time with this person um, or a nicer this, or a bigger that, or a better this. I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus says multiple times, it's very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because when you have what you want, it's very easy to be self-reliant. And when you're self-reliant on yourself, oh man, James has something to say. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Three warnings for the arrogant Christian. It's easy to ignore and forget God. It's really easy. Have a view of God of your life that is true. Uh, have, a, have a view of how God works in your life that is true. And pray for protection against a heart that seeks material profit and acquisition over a heart that seeks God's will. So how do I combat these? How do I, how, you know, here's this warning that James says, and it's pretty stark. It's pretty honest. He's pretty blunt. How do I shape my life? In verse 14, we get this idea to think rightly about our lives. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, down to 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So what is your life? Right, that's the million-dollar question. What is my life? It's incredibly temporary. 
Well, the Bible has all kinds of metaphors and analogies to use to describe our life, whether it's a vapor, whether it's a mist, whether it's here in the morning, gone by the morning. Right? And, and Pastor Mike and I joke about this recently. Four generations, we will be gone forever, forgotten forever. Like maybe you will be a picture on someone's wall if you have a great, great grandchild who's like curious about genealogy. And maybe, you know, guests will come and say, well, who is that? Oh, I don't know. I found this on Ancestry.com. It's really cool. I think that they were married. They came. Our knowledge of the present is incredibly limited. And our knowledge of the future is non-existent. If the Lord wills. Now, this, this is a big topic. Um, I don't have time to go deep into it at all. Um, it's a deep pool. It's a wide pool. But this whole idea of Lord willing, if the Lord wills. Right? So we can say that. That can easily come off my tongue. Right? If the Lord wills, I will do this. I will do that. But like, if you're a critical thinker and you start going down a couple layers and you start saying, okay, well, if the Lord wills, some things happen and other things don't happen. Well, it's all great when you get a new car. Yay, the Lord wills. I got a great new car. But what happens when tragedy strikes? Right? Or what happens when there's deep grief or loss or pain? Then all of a sudden you're asking yourselves, well, did the Lord will that? Because if nothing happens outside the will of the Lord... How do I answer that question? And then you really start going deep in theology and you start saying, well, what does will even mean? Right? There's like a sovereign will. There is um, an elective will. There's a moral will. Um, There's like seven to ten different categories of the will of God. So how do I say nothing happens without the will of the Lord, without like really like digging pretty deep and saying, That's a painful pill to swallow sometimes. How do I answer that? And I don't have time to swim in that pool, but I will say this because I don't think it's fair not to say something. God is sovereign. God is good. And he doesn't cause evil. And you got to land there and you got to wrestle with that. And there's a lot there to wrestle with. People have been doing it for thousands of years, so we're not going to solve it in the next five minutes. Lastly, for the Christian, and I think this is really important, um, we need to work hard at trusting what I have reason to believe is true. We need to work hard at trusting and practicing what I have reason to believe is true. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of a twist here on verse 17. I, I, this is kind of my twist uh, that, I, that I see through this. If you don't see it, it's okay. You can think I'm crazy. Um, verse 17, here's what James says. Um, when I first kept, I kept reading this and reading this and saying like, well, what is, how does this fit into here? And, and it kind of clicked to me and I hope this, this works. So he says this, uh, so whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it for him, this is sin. So again, back to the, the beginning, uh, James is talking to Christians who know how to live. Uh, he's talking to people who know what they should do, but they're not doing it. So he's warning them. And, and that is called a sin of omission. When you know what you should do and you don't do it. Theologically, that's a sin of omission. There are sins of commission. Commission is this idea of, not, of doing what you shouldn't do. But omission is not doing what you should do. And he says for, for that, for the sin of omission, that is wrong. So um, how do I as a Christian act on what I know to be true 
how do I act on what I know to be true? Because clearly, um, I need to, clearly James needs to give us that warning because we're not acting on it. Um, I'm going to get some help here uh, from Dallas Willard, who is a theologian and a professor of philosophy at USC. He writes this in, fittingly, the title of the book, The Great Omission. He says this about how it is true that we need to act on what it is that we believe. He says, we have counted on preaching, teaching, and knowledge or information to form faith in the hearer and have counted on faith to form the inner life and outward behavior of the Christian. But for whatever reason, this strategy has not turned out well. The result is we have many professing Christians who may well be ready to die, but obviously are not ready to live and can hardly get along with themselves much less with others. Man, that cuts deep. He's basically saying, so there's a lot of churches filled with people who think that spiritual formation is enough just to show up for an hour on Sunday. Like, perhaps I show up on Sunday, I get fed, I get fed, and, and that's enough, and that will form me to be a follower, both in my affections and in my behavior. And Dallas Willard is saying, that's not enough. And I'm saying it's not enough because, you know, 45 seconds when, after JJ says, okay, have a great Sunday, you're going to look on your phone and that phone's going to disciple you in a whole different direction. Every message you get from every angle you get outside of here and outside of Christian fellowship is going to tell you, you are the king of your life. And so a half hour out of an entire week that says, no, you're not the king of your life. God needs to be the center of your plans. A half hour isn't going to be enough. And so Dallas continues, and he says this. He says, indeed, the spirit or heart may even be eager. So he's saying, like, I may want that. I may want to have a life of obedience. And he goes to Matthew 26, 41. But he says, unless the flesh or embodied personality as a whole is trained, what a big word, to go with it and support it, the follow-through in action will not occur. Or it will not reliably happen. Or may even be in direct conflict with the spirit or will. Jumping up a few pages in the book, he says, we cannot obey Christ or even trust him by direct effort. So he's kind of setting that stage clear. You can't just will yourself through effort. What then are the indirect means that allow us to cooperate with the spirit, cooperation in reshaping the personality, the feelings, the ideas, the mental processes and images and the deep readiness of the soul and body that our whole being is poised to go with the movement of the regenerate heart. He says these means, and here's his answer, are primarily the disciplines for life in the spirit. Solitude and silence, prayer and fasting, Worship and study, fellowship and confession. Man, I was so moved by these words this week that um, Thursday, Pastor Mike was coming in Thursday afternoon. He was getting ready to uh, get his nose drilled out. That's why he's not here this week. And I'm just like, Mike, this is so good. You got to hear this. So I make him sit down, sit in this chair. I have to read this to you. And I read this to him. And in his response to me, he says this, he says, man, 
I fear that as Christians, it's so easy to get just enough information to know how we should live, but not ongoingly, continuously form our lives into a life that will put us into a spot where we can be obedient. Yeah, that's so true. It's easy to just feel like I've got enough, but not put myself in a spot where I can regularly hear from the Lord, God, what do you want for my life? What do you want my calendar to look like? God, what do you want my plans for my future to look like? As we rely on the Holy Spirit, I would ask you, are you putting yourself in a place where you're able to hear from the Lord, where you're able to spend time with the Lord, where you're able to constantly fill yourself with a message that says, you're not the sovereign king of your life, God is. Lastly, for the Christian, I'll ask us, um, what's God asking you to do with your life? He's asking us all to do very different things. We have different personalities, different giftedness. Um, Perhaps you're exhausted, overwhelmed, just downright tired because you're doing too much of what God didn't ask you to do and not enough of what he did. So what's God asking you to do? And we all have different capacities. You know, kind of the analogy of plate sizes. We all have different sizes of plates and God's asked us to put different things on our plates. So what's the size of your plate and what's God asking you to put on yours? It's a great question. I can remember a bit earlier in my life, always looking at other people's plates and kind of judging their plates, especially like some friends who have less capacity, some friends who have more, like the friends who have less, like, what are you doing? You're kind of like not really doing a whole lot. Or friends who have more capacity, oh, I'm just tired just watching you. Can you just stop? But what is God asking you to do? We're going to have some time here. Uh, as we sing, and I'm going to keep going here. We're not done, but I want you to ask yourselves those questions about your life and what God has asked you to do. Um, lastly, I want to speak to the person in, in this room here who, who's not yet a follower of Jesus. Um, and I told you I'm going to speak to two different groups here because I can't just say you need to plan your life if your goals aren't the same. I want to speak to this person and I want to say... Um, The author, uh, James, the author who wrote this book, for half of his life, he was not a follower of Jesus also. Half his life. Um, In fact, he he absolutely doubted and had, there's no way he would believe that Jesus was God. And Jesus was his brother, which actually probably made it easier and harder at the same time. Like, no one's going to believe their brother is God, right? Like, never had a brother, I've always had sisters, but good Lord, I'd never believe they were God. Um, and certainly Jesus was a little, you know, more holy and perfect. There is that, but, uh, you know, the, the Bible like so clearly says they doubted him. Uh, you can go to Mark three, you can go to Mark six, you can go to John seven. We're going to go to John seven. I think this is fascinating. John seven verse three says this. So, oh. so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea. Sorry, his brothers said to him. So they're talking to Jesus. Leave here. Go go to Judea so that your disciples um, also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And we know that this is laced in sarcasm because the following statement is the following. For not even his brothers believed in him. So here's his brothers, and they're saying to Jesus, yeah, yeah, take your disciples, go do your little miracles to the world. Like, yeah, go show Jerusalem. Good luck with that, older brother. And, 
And his brother wasn't 13 at the time. This is not like some crazy 13-year-old like, hey, I'm God. I'm coming to judge the living and the dead. Like Jesus is 30. And his brothers think he belongs in a padded room. Yeah, go do that, Jesus. But then something changed in James's life. We read these words from Paul, and James and Paul had this really cool relationship. I don't have time to talk about it, but we read this from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. And then verse 7 is clutch here. He says, then he appeared to James. And I love that. Like Jesus specifically goes and finds his brother. And honestly, I would have loved to have been there when that happened. Like here's Jesus. I like, told you I'm God. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like I just can imagine some like brotherly something going on there. Like maybe, I don't know, maybe it was very soft and gentle, but I'd like to think that Jesus was human too because he was and had like this gotcha moment. Like, you moron, I was God. Yeah, go clean my room or whatever. Like, um, but from that moment forward, James' life changed like from a complete doubter of his brother God to I'm going to give my life, literally give my life to following Jesus, God, my brother. He became a staple in Jerusalem in the church there, which is like the apex of spiritual authority in the early church. Uh, James is mentioned in early Acts when it's like the disciples are together. So here's Jesus' best friend and James, who who didn't want anything to do with it earlier. He was there when the church began. He was literally partnered with Peter at the council of Jerusalem when like the church was being formed and they were asking questions of, are Gentiles even allowed in? I mean, James stands up to Paul and he goes, this is what's going to happen, people. Because he saw his risen brother. He saw him when he was killed. He saw him when he was put in the grave and he saw him afterwards. And he goes, okay, if you can conquer death, you're God. Okay, that's, that is the ace of spades. I'll give it to you. And he gave his life. He was literally thrown off the temple, killed. He didn't die. He's such a tough guy. He didn't die when he hit the ground. They came and had to beat him with stones and literally beat him to death because he would not stop preaching that Jesus was God. So my appeal to you would be this. Sure, it can be hard to believe that Jesus was God. But if he raised from the dead, and and I'd ask you to wrestle with that question because that's like, that's where it all lies. Did he raise from the dead? Is he God? Then perhaps he's worth following. Jesus is the only person to ever claim to be God. He's the only person to raise himself from the dead. And he has an invitation to follow him for a life of maximum joy, a life of forgiveness, a life of peace in the midst of a difficult world uh, where every day we don't know what's going to happen, but we can trust him that he is good. So let's pray. And I want you to ask yourself, whether a Christian or not, God, are you real? And God, what do you have for my life? And God, help me to live my life in such a way that as I'm looking at my Google calendar, I say, Jesus, what are you asking me to do this month, this week, this day? Would you pray with me? Lord, 
thank you for your word from James. Uh, thank you for the testimony of um, your little brother. I love that the Bible is real, um, meaning I love that it doesn't try to paint a picture of James that wasn't true. That you know, Ever since he was a little kid, he just followed Jesus around as his perfect older brother. No, there was so much humanity there that James had huge doubts and absolutely disregarded Jesus as Savior. But then when seeing a resurrected Jesus, his life was changed. And Lord, I would pray that the same would be true to us. That because we've seen and, we, and, and the most reasonable explanation of what has happened is that you have raised from the dead, Lord, that we would give our lives to you. Lord, I, I ask that those of us who have given our lives to you would really consider how we plan our lives. It's so easy to forget you in the middle of kind of the hustle and bustle. But Lord, let us stop and let us say, Jesus, what have you asked me to do? And am I, am I doing it? We love you, Jesus. Amen.